Welcome to West Church. We're so thankful you've joined us today. Whether you're joining us in person or virtually, we're excited to come together to praise, worship, and receive God's glory. If this is your first time with us, we'd like to give you a very special welcome. If you're returning, thanks for joining us again. We appreciate it, and we appreciate you. Now, let's prepare to be inspired and encouraged as we enter into worship. So a few years back, I was uh, having a problem with each of my shoulders, and I was experiencing pain and losing mobility. I believe it was the right shoulder first, and so I went to the doctor, and it was diagnosed as this thing called frozen shoulder, and they gave me a couple of shots deep into the joint and physical therapy, and within a period of a few weeks, it was back up and good. Well, then the second shoulder started to hurt, and I said, ah, I've got the same thing in the other shoulder. It just moved from one side to the other. But this time, the doctor said, no, I think this is something different, and he sent me to a physical therapist, and the therapist did the exam and manipulated my shoulder around, and he said, no, I think the problem this time is that the muscles in your shoulder are weak and they're a little atrophied, and they're not pulling your shoulder into the socket properly, so your shoulder is kind of like flopping around a little bit and impinging on the uh, tendon, and that's what's causing the pain. I said, okay, what do I have to do? He says, well, we got to do a few weeks of physical therapy, and so I went to the therapist, and I used those, those long rubber bands. You ever use those, you know? It's kind of like, it's kind of like weights and resistance training, and uh, after a few weeks, the resistance made my muscles stronger, and sure enough, the pain in my shoulder went away. Resistance made my shoulder strong again. Can faith be like that? When we meet resistance, or hardship, or persecution, or pain, can the muscles of our faith grow stronger to face resistance? I think it can. As a matter of fact, I think that is what we see beginning in the life of Mordecai in our passage. We're in a series this new year entitled, When God Seems Invisible. And the name of God is never mentioned in the book of Esther, but nevertheless, what we find is that God is actually quite at work. The story takes place in the capital of the Persian Empire, the city of Susa. Ahasuerus, also known as Xerxes, Xerxes and Ahasuerus are the same person. I use those names interchangeably. He is the king. And the palace of Ahasuerus is not a safe place. He and his advisors hold absolute power over the empire, and the little people are little more than objects to fulfill his will and his pleasure. Xerxes banishes his first queen because for her failure to perform for to his liking. Then he holds a beauty contest snatching up all of the beautiful young virgins of the kingdom and using them up one at a time until he finds one pleasing enough to make his new queen. 
Mordecai, who had a government job in the king's gate, is the adoptive father of a beautiful young woman named Esther. They are Jews, but secretly so. She is swept up into the king's harem and ends up becoming the queen. And after her coronation, Mordecai uncovers a plot to kill the king. So he tells Esther, Esther tells the king, saving the king's life. But Mordecai's good deed goes unnoticed. That's where we left off last week. And you can go back and listen on our podcast or our YouTube channel to find out what you missed. This week, we find once again that the palace continues to be a very dangerous place. The plot thickens, and this is what we're going to discover, three things. First of all, proud leadership is destructive. Proud leadership is destructive. Secondly, hardship may draw out our faith. Hardship may draw out our faith. And thirdly, God is the master of chance and happenstance. Let's go to it. First of all, proud leadership is destructive. We see this in the first six verses. You would expect that Mordecai, having rescued the king, would be promoted here, but instead it's this guy named Haman. Mordecai goes unnoticed and is passed over for Haman. We're told that Haman is an ag-agite which is not a known people group during the time of the Persian Empire. The Hebrew Bible mentions a man by the name of Agag, who was the king of the Amalekites in 1 Samuel 15. The Amalekite people had attacked Israel as they were making their way to the promised land. And once Israel was settled, King Saul of Israel was commanded to strike the Amalekite people. And King Saul spared Agag, who was the king of Amalek, in disobedience to God's command. And his disobedience to God cost King Saul his future as king. And the prophet Samuel does what King Saul refused to do, and he puts Agag to death. Now, hundreds of years after that event... A Persian high official is referred to as an Agagite. It's probably a negative slur used by the author of the Esther story to bring back that history. But we find out that Haman deserves a negative title. Haman needs King Xerxes to command that all people throughout the kingdom bow down to Haman and respect him. Could it be that Haman hadn't earned the respect of the people that he had to have his king command people to respect him? It doesn't reflect well on Haman's vanity, does it? He is so proud that he must command people to honor him. And when Haman discovers that Mordecai will not bow down to him and do homage, he is enraged. 
But he doesn't want to take out his rage on Mordecai alone. When he finds out that Mordecai is a Jew, he decides that he's going to plot to harm the entire Jewish race of people, not just the rebellious Mordecai. I'll show him. You know, honor and respect are ultimately something that should be earned. You can command respect at the barrel of a gun, but that doesn't mean that you deserve it or that you've earned it. In the letter to James, chapter 4, verse 10, he writes to us, Humble yourselves before the Lord, and He will lift you up. And as people of faith in Jesus, we do not need to demand that people respect us. In fact, when we feel that way, it may reveal a weakness in our hearts rather than in others. Arrogance is not a Christian virtue. And it is especially heinous when it is manifested by leaders because a proud person is going to misuse and take advantage of others. It's going to happen. And guess what we see next? Verses 7 through 11. Next we find Haman manipulating his king. His approach to the king is tricksy. He doesn't name the race of people that he wants to destroy. He simply states that they are different from other people, so different that they are disobedient to the king. And Haman persuades the king that it would not matter if they survive. In addition, he's going to put 10,000 talents into the treasury. Most likely, that would come from the spoils of the Jews that were executed. There's a historian by the name of Herodotus who mentions that under Xerxes' father, the king before King Xerxes, the annual revenue of the Persian Empire was about 15,000 talents per year. Haman is going to enrich the empire by 10,000 talents through one event, destroying all the Jewish people and taking their stuff. But there's a problem with that because the Jews are God's people in this day. You know, his plot to kill the Jews is not unlike the kind of lies that were used by the Romans against the Christians centuries later. The Caesars declared themselves to be gods they demanded that all Romans burn incense and bow down to Caesar. The Christians were not troublemakers, but they would not bow down to Caesar, and consequently they were severely persecuted and many, many were killed. It should not surprise us that there are powers that be in the world seeking to work against the good news of Jesus and his family of faith in the world. Joe, though Jesus was exceptional and upright as a leader of the newest expression of God's kingdom in the world, nevertheless, people aligned against him with deep, powerful, and sometimes unreasonable resistance. We see this playing out in the book of Acts and in Revelation as well. 
And when resistance and opposition arise to the cause of Christ, we do not have the same right, we do not have the right to use the same arrogant, wicked, and harmful ways that are thrown against us. The Apostle Paul warned us in his letter to the Romans in chapter 12, this is what he said to the Romans who were in the very heart of the fire in that day. Bless those who persecute you. Bless and do not curse them. Rejoice with those who rejoice. Weep with those who weep. Live in harmony with one another. Do not be haughty but associate with the lowly. Never be wise in your own sight. Repay no one evil for evil, but give thought to do what is honorable in the sight of all. If possible, so far as it depends on you, live peaceably with all. Beloved, never avenge yourselves, but Leave it to the wrath of God, for it is written, Vengeance is mine, I will repay, says the Lord. To the contrary, if your enemy is hungry, feed him. If he is thirsty, give him something to drink, for by doing so, you will heap burning coals on his head. And he wraps it up in verse 21. Do not be overcome by evil, but overcome evil with good. These commands come to us from Jesus and his apostles. And if you have ever been hurt by an evil person, they seem completely and utterly counterintuitive. Don't pay back. Don't take revenge. Don't slander your enemies. What then? Do good. Do right, do truth, do love, be forgiving, pray for, and do not retaliate against your enemies. Don't use the evil done to you as an excuse to perpetuate evil on other people. Someone has said, hurt people hurt. Have you heard that? Hurt people hurt other people. But those who have, but for us, We, who have offended our God and received undeserved grace and mercy from Him, we now have the ability, with the help of the Holy Spirit, to surrender to His love for us and to share that kind of love with other people. But make no mistake... Proud leadership, it is destructive. Sometimes we will become the victims of the pride of others. And we show the glory and the love of our God when we break the cycle of harm and do something much better with God's help. So proud leadership is destructive. Secondly, hardship may draw out your faith. Hardship may draw out your faith. 
Last week we saw that Mordecai wanted Esther to fly under the radar by not revealing her Jewish heritage. Presumably, Mordecai lived by the same advice that he gave to his adoptive daughter. However, there is something in this Haman situation, even before Haman decides to pursue the entire Jewish race, that crosses the line for Mordecai and he is no longer content to remain hidden. The language used for bowing down and paying homage in the Hebrew in which the book of Esther is originally written is the language of worship. And presumably, Mordecai not only didn't respect Haman, but perceived bowing down to him as a violation of Jewish religious law, particularly the first commandment, you shall have no other gods before me. And Mordecai can no longer stay in the shadows. For him, this crosses the line. And his contemporaries question him as to why he doesn't bow down like the rest. And his conscience forbids him from worshiping another man, especially that man. There is a prayer that was written by an unknown Confederate soldier And it goes like this. Perhaps you've heard it before. I asked God for strength that I might achieve. I was made weak that I might learn humbly how to obey. I asked for health that I might do greater things. I was given infirmity that I might do better things. I asked for riches that I might be happy. I was given poverty that I might be wise. I asked for power that I might have the praise of men. I was given weakness that I might feel the need of God. I asked for all things that I might enjoy life. I was given life that I might enjoy all things. I got nothing I asked for, but everything I hoped for. Almost despite myself, my unspoken prayers were answered. I am among all men most richly blessed. We tend to view hardship in our lives as something we wish that God would take away from us. And yet, in the long run, God so often uses hardship to grow our faith in ways that we could never imagine if we had not gone through that. We find this very same pattern in the life of the Apostle Paul himself, who was a tremendously gifted teacher endowed with revelations from God, And in his second letter to the Corinthians, chapter 12, he describes this experience this way, verse 7 and following. So to keep me from becoming conceited because of the surpassing greatness of the revelations that Paul had received these things, to keep him from becoming conceited, it says this, a thorn was given me in the flesh a messenger of Satan to harass me, 
to keep me from becoming conceited. So something was going on in Paul's life, whether in his body or his spirit, that was troubling him deeply. So what did he do? Verse 8, three times I pleaded with the Lord about this, that he should take it away. God, please take this away from me. I don't like this thorn in the flesh. Verse 9, but he, God, said to me, my grace is sufficient for you, for my power is made perfect in weakness. God said, no, not going to take it away, Paul. I'm going to give you grace that's enough for you to abide in this weakness, and you are going to manifest my power out of your weakness. Does Paul learn the lesson? Yes, he goes on to say, Therefore I will boast all the more gladly of my weaknesses so that the power of Christ may rest upon me. For the sake of Christ, then, I am content with weaknesses, insults, hardships, persecutions, and calamities, for when I am weak, then I am strong." Our loving Father is quite capable of using the hardships that we endure to draw us closer to Himself and to allow us to experience deeper levels of His grace and His compassion. We kick and scream against our circumstances and yet God has not abandoned us. What we find is that he is right there with us in the painful circumstances if we are willing to humble ourselves and draw near to him. We need his help. We need his grace. We need his love and compassion. It is hardship that also often brings us to the place of surrender to his love for us. I had the privilege yesterday of uh, going to the recital for Kelly's piano students, and it was a real treat, and there were beginners there who could play one note at a time, and it was great to hear them, and there were people who worked really, really hard to do their very best, and people who had just pure heart that made it sweet, and then there were people who were just naturally gifted and have worked very hard, and you just sit there and go, ah. Oh. Now, we don't look at the beginners and say, well, they stink. And we don't look at the person who is naturally gifted and say, oh, he's so much better. She's so much better. No. We treasure each one where they are at because that is where they, God has them. Sometimes we have a misunderstanding of what it means to grow or become a mature Christian. And we look at other people and we say, oh, what a mature Christian man or what a mature Christian woman. I could never be like that. And we set ourselves either out to try to be like them or we become discouraged and give up because we know we can never be like them. And we don't know where they started and where they're going to end up. They may be naturally gifted or they may be just a beginner and we should never compare ourselves with others nor despair that we are not like them. 
Because Christian growth and maturity aren't a comparison game. The only Christian you are going to grow into is the new you that Jesus is working on right now. And the only way to be transformed in the midst of the resistance that you face in life, whatever kind of resistance that may be, is one day at a time. You trust God to help you today. If you blow it, you ask for forgiveness. If you succeed, you say thank you. Tomorrow is a new day, and we start over. It doesn't matter where anybody else is in the growth spectrum in their walk with God. The only thing that matters is where you are in your walk with God right now. And that walk is one day at a time. We repent and we believe as often as we need to on a daily basis, and then we start again the next day. And when we simplify it this way, we are likely to experience that hardship draws out our faith one day at a time. Lastly, I want you to see that God is the master of chance and happenstance. Any of you ever grow up playing with a magic eight ball? <laughs> All right, I see the hand back there. If you, they, I think they still make this thing today. So it's, it's, a, it's a plastic eight ball, like, like on a pool table, okay? And it's filled with liquid, okay? And then when you turn it over, it has a glass plate. And there's this little dice on the inside that has like these preset answers to it. And when you turn it over, the dice floats up and it answers your question. So you say, magic eight ball, is it going to snow this week? And you shake it and you turn it over and it says, it is likely. It's a silly way of getting an answer or finding out the future. But here's the thing. Look with me at verse 7. In the first month, which is the month of Nisan, in the twelfth year of King Ahasuerus, they cast poor, that is, they cast lots before Haman, day after day, and they cast it month after month, till the twelfth month, which is the month of Adar. Then jump to verse 13. Letters were sent by couriers to all of the king's provinces with instruction to destroy, to kill, and to annihilate all Jews, young and old, women and children, in one day, the thirteenth day of the twelfth month, which is the month of Adar, and to plunder their goods. So, what do we see here? Haman, or the people in front of Haman, are feverishly casting the poor, it says, to find out what is supposed to do and when they're supposed to do it. A poor is a kind of dice, like a magic eight ball, that is rolled in order to get an answer. And they believe that by rolling the dice, they're going to get the answer of the gods. Haman was really looking for the answer from the gods about how to conduct his life and when to do these things. And here's what I want you to see. After Haman decided to attack the Jews, 
Then he had to get permission to attack the Jews. Then he wrote up the decree to attack the Jews, and it was sent all throughout the entire empire. And the day that the riders left the city of Susa was the 13th day of the first month, which is the day before the sacrifice of the Passover lamb. A Jewish high holiday. On that day, the news was spread that they were to be annihilated. The dice told Haman to, to kill all the Jews everywhere on the 13th day of the 12th month, 11 months later. Those who know the rest of the story know that 11 months is plenty of time for things to change. Haman is casting the poor to find out the will of his God, not realizing that by the long delay, the God of Israel could overturn him and rescue his own people quite easily. God laughs. In the Hebrew Bible, in the book of Proverbs, chapter 16, verse 33, it says this, the lot or the dice is cast into the lap, but its every decision is from the Lord. Haman rolled the dice to hear the advice from a false god, but the true god was in complete control of the outcome. In the book of Esther, God is never mentioned. He seems to be invisible. We've seen in the first three chapters of the book events which covered a period of 12 years. It's 12 years from the beginning of the book of Esther till where we are today. And that during those 12 years, the things are going from bad to worse for Esther, for Mordecai, for the people of Israel. 12 years of the dark, exploitive rule of Persia. You know, when life is bad, 12 years can feel like an eternity. And yet, now the man who hates Mordecai and the Jews and has issued a decree to have them all executed, all the while he is ignorant of the reality that the queen who is married to the king who okayed the order to kill the Jews is actually a Jew herself. This might not go as Haman expected. God has so orchestrated the events of Mordecai and Esther who were nobodies in the Persian Empire so that now Esther is the queen. And though his name is not mentioned, it sure seems like he is quite in charge of this very dark situation. And even though Esther and Mordecai were quite broken people and not necessarily so noble in their faith, their faith is going to get a whole lot stronger pretty fast because God is going to work through their shaky faith. Last year, I, I shared with you from a passage in the book of Romans, chapter 8, verse 28, 
which says, and we know that for those who love God, all things work together for good, for those who are called according to his purpose. In part, this verse means that when a person knows Jesus as their Savior, we can be fully assured that no matter what is going on in the world, no matter how bad life gets, no matter how dark the world may become, no matter how painful it may be for you and I personally, in Jesus, we can be fully assured that God will use every single event, no matter how bad, for our good, and it is all from His hand for our good. We may not fully understand it. We may or may not get all of the answers to all of our questions. We may or may not enjoy it or feel good as we are going through it. But of this we can be assured that God loves us, that He holds us, that He is at work no matter what for our good. And the horrible circumstances that we see in the world all around us are never an indicator that God has lost control or that he, uh, he missed something or He doesn't know everything or see everything or superintend everything towards His own perfect ends and our complete good. He is the God of chance and happenstance. In the days of Esther, and in your life and mine as well. Things may seem a bit crazy in our United States of America. Things may be a bit crazy in the world around us. Wars and rumors of wars, proud misuse of power and authority, lies and arrogance, crimes without punishment, the big people are splashed all over our TV screens or our news feeds, while all the little people are like ants being crushed in the chaos like us. Where is God in the midst of all this? Where was he in the days of Esther? The days of Jesus? Well, he was there all the time. He is here all the time. And the love of God holds us in the palm of his hand. And the reign of God assures us that he will never lose us. When you are in Jesus, you know your sins are forgiven. God is your father and your future is one of hope. With this conviction, we grow despite the resistance. Let's pray. God of glory, we worship you. It is hard for us to see all that you're doing in the world. Sometimes it's really, really hard just to hold on. We believe, Lord Jesus, help our unbelief. 
Thank you for your love that never fails. Thank you for your reign, which is always true. Thank you for being at work always, even when we cannot fully see it or understand it. We love you, God. We trust you. We praise you today. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.